my kids have challenges. My son has diabetes. In fact, maybe one of the first projects um, I ever did along the vein of mad science is I hacked all of his equipment and built one of the first AIs for diabetes. Um, that was pretty mad because it turns out I broke a whole bunch of federal laws. But, <laughs> um, you know, um, imagine if every parent had the chance to feel the same thing I felt, that they were the one superhero that, that could actually make a difference in their child's life. Welcome to Overshare, a show where I interview creatives I admire about the struggles of being a creative professional. I'm your host, Justin Genak, and I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Working Not Working. Uh, now, how are you? I hope you're doing all right. This is day 30-something, maybe early 40s of social distancing for me and staying at home and hanging in there, watching a bunch of crappy TV, Nothing at this point that I'd recommend except for maybe the new season of Killing Eve. Um, but we're, we're doing all right. We're having fun. And hopefully you're making the most of it as well. Just, you know, trying to make the most of each day over here. I'm not taking anything for granted. There's a few housekeeping things at the top here. First of all, we would love for you to please subscribe, rate, and review Overshare right now or maybe after the episode. Uh, it's the way that we bump up in the rankings and help other people discover the podcast. Uh, you can also go to our Instagram at Overshare Talks, where we have a bunch of clips and, and animations um, from the episode, where you can take those and share those around, and we'd love that as well. Uh, you can also follow Working Not Working on Instagram at WNotW, or you can join us at WorkingNotWorking.com. And for those of you who don't know who we are, uh, Working Not Working is a curated community of the best creatives in the universe, the, the top people in the industry making all of the best award-winning, culture-changing work. Now, companies like Apple, Google, Airbnb, Nike, Spotify, Droga5, Widening Kennedy, all use Working Not Working to find freelance and full-time creative talent. And if you are one of those people that's uh, best of the best in the creative industry, or you like to hire those type of creatives, uh, we'd love to have you join us at WorkingNotWorking.com. Now, let's get into this episode. I am pumped. Today's Overshare conversation is with Dr. Vivian Ming, a self-described mad scientist. That's pretty cool. I saw Dr. Ming speak at Adobe's 99U conference last year and was blown away. I, I couldn't take notes fast enough. She was talking about cyborgs and brain patches expanding your working memory span and living with purpose leading to a longer life where you make more money and walk faster when you're 65. And she truly believes that everyone on the planet can be amazing. Now, Dr. Ming made the choice of what to major in in college based on the coin toss between economics and cognitive neuroscience. She had dropped out of school previously, became homeless, and then when she was able to get back on her feet, wanted to study a major she could finish in a year. Uh, so she flipped a coin on it and went with cognitive neuroscience. Of course, like who wouldn't? Uh, now, on top of being a mad scientist, she's also an entrepreneur and author. Sokos Labs, her fifth company, is focused on exploring the future of human potential. And people come to Sokos Labs with a problem, and if they think their team can make a difference, they'll tackle it for no charge. And if they come up with any kind of solution, they'll give it all away for free, which is, uh, as Dr. Ming admits, a terrible business model. Uh, but it seems uh, <laughs> it seems to be doing a lot of good. And people come to them with like a variety of problems. So uh, someone will come to them with, uh, my daughter has 500 seizures a day, please save her life. Or my company doesn't know how to retain women, please help us. So they're tackling a range of problems and trying to do a lot of good for the world. We also talk about how both of us grew up with pet pigs. Uh, her ultimate goal to give a keynote at Comic-Con someday for some still-to-be-figured-out project. And also how Dr. Ming sees creatives and the creative economy being an integral part of the future of work. Which 
coming from someone who does creates uh, AI and robotics who sometimes replaces humans, uh, it's reassuring to hear that she sees what we do as an integral part of the future. In this episode, you will learn that the scientifically proven secret to a more successful and rich life is living with purpose, seriously. And in order to future-proof your career, one of the biggest skills you need is resiliency and a growth mindset. Now, your Zoom call dinner party conversation game is about to get a lot smarter and a lot more interesting with all the knowledge Dr. Ming is about to drop on you. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Vivian Ming. I am so excited to be having this conversation. I saw you speak at 99U last year. Oh, terrific. And uh, I couldn't take notes fast enough. So I'm glad it came out as a video afterward because I just like every everything you're saying, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, because as uh, in being a creative myself and being in the creative industry, I think there's a general fear of what's coming. Uh, and I think you you did a great job of putting me at ease. Uh, and I think that whole room at ease, but then also inspiring us to be to do more of what we do, but better and invest in that. And I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of that. Uh, but I'm really, really thankful that you were able to join us. I'm thrilled that I would rather have done it in New York, but that whole trip suddenly magically disappeared. Although I have to say, I actually still flew out, in this case, to Boston uh, for some work I was doing there, a a meeting I considered important enough to keep um, with a bunch of people from PBS uh, and uh, some economists at MIT, and all of the MIT people bailed on me after I'd flown all the way out there. So, How, How long ago was this? This was uh, about uh, three weeks ago. Oh, wow. Uh, so it would have been part of a, the trip I, I was supposed to be talking at the UN and doing these other events. And so it was a, the whole thing got canceled, except I still flew out. And I think the thing there I'm getting as a result is I will get to uh, star in an episode of Nova, uh, just about me. Uh, that, that's really? my little uh, gold star for actually be willing to risk myself and my family's lives for PBS. <laughs> Congratulations! That seems yeah, like a it fun. seems like a close trade off. I grew up uh, every Sunday night for me was uh, myself and my father. It would start with Nature and Nova and Cosmos and that whole run of PBS shows. Yeah, and then it would run into. Uh, Monty Python and Benny Hill and the two Ronnies and all these 60s and 70s British comedies, and then Doctor Who. Like oh, that amazing. was the core of my life for a very long time. So it's just to, to be able to be part of that, it's got to be got to be surreal. I th- this will be my Nobel Prize moment. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's that's pretty well, fantastic. Although I do have a uh, uh, another goal someday of giving a keynote at Comic-Con uh, in celebration of my newly released I haven't figured out what yet. I, I think it's good to have those goals that you you just you plant the flag and you figure out I don't know how the hell I'm going to get there, but Yes. someday we'll get there. Well, I like to start every episode off this season with a just some random questions to to get us going. Uh, not the, the 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 heavier stuff we may get into. So uh, it is five random questions from a random receptacle, uh, and today I'm going with the of glove. Um, I've do, been doing more cooking uh, in the past three weeks than I've done in probably the past ten years. So this has come in handy, and I'm just going to pull random questions out, and we'll we'll see what happens. All right, let's see. First one is, what was your favorite food as a kid? 
pork chops. Uh, I mean, my parents knew wherever we went, if they saw pork chops on the menu, that was what I was going to order. And here is the truly horrific part. I also raised pigs when I was little, and now I can't, I can't eat pork anymore. I just can't do it. Uh, yeah. It is the cruelest joke uh, that these wonderful little critters are so tasty. Uh, but uh, my favorite food and I can't have it. As a kid, I had a, a Vietnamese pot-bellied pig. And, <laughs> yes. and and I feel like I, I still eat pork, which is just like a horrible thing. I'm just a terrible human apparently, but uh, they are the smartest animals and so they loving. Would, um, one of them, they were named uh, Penelope Pigstop, Hamlet, <laughs> And red, not too inspired, but it was a breed, a red breed. And mm -hmm. um, one of them, I think it was Hamlet, uh, my black lab would open the gate from the outside and the two of them would go play. So I, how could you it's eat like a, cartoon. a pig after that? Yeah. Yeah. And wait, where'd you grow up? I grew up in um, Salinas, California, Monterey. Uh, in fact, uh, John Steinbeck, um, mm -hmm. our local kid, wrote a book titled The Pastures of Heaven, set okay. in a little valley uh, in between Big Sur and Salinas. And I grew up literally in the pastures of heaven. Oh, that's incredible. I've, I've never been there. I've never been to Big Sur, but everybody could not speak more highly of that area. <laughs> it is a lovely place to grow up. I, I have lived in... Um, the Pastures of Heaven in La Jolla down in San Diego for school and Palo Alto and Berkeley and Santa Cruz. Uh, I really enjoyed my time in Pittsburgh doing my PhD, but I have to admit um, a part of it was a penance. Five yeah, years yeah. of actual winters uh -huh. uh, of, you know, s seeing the city that uh, Steele built. It, it was a wildly different experience than coastal California. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine, yeah. Uh, all right, second question. What was your favorite movie as a kid? Oh, my goodness. There was a time when I could do every line from Star Wars, largely because it just ran, like, on a loop on Showtime. And so right. I'd watch it every day. Not a huge uh, shock there. Um, and I'm a big science fiction uh, and fantasy geek, so I, I read everything I could find. Probably my deeper cut, um, though if you're a nerd like me, you'll get it, is uh, movies like Beastmaster. Um, and until- uh, They were terrifying so, though, as a yes, kid. Terrifying to watch. Exactly. Uh, it, it, you know, we didn't have the Lord of the Rings and um, Game of Thrones, these high quality things back there. So you watch these schlocky B-movie stuff, uh, you know, filmed, uh, for cheap in some rock quarry somewhere. Uh, and you just, you got what you could get out of your own imagination from what the world could give you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question is, uh, do you have a favorite robot from TV or movies? Oh, criminy. Um, that is a good question. Uh, I, I mean, I can certainly still remember seeing Robbie the robot in uh Forbidden Planet, uh, before mm. my time. But again, right. one of the things that's wildly different about today, my kids almost never see old versions of shows or co concepts or anything. I can remember growing up, I'd watch reruns from like the 50s and 60s. Because that's all there uh, was. You're like Nickelodeon yeah, or Nick at, at Night. You're, that's all you're watching. 
And and now I was watching some uh, cartoon my kids were watching, and I'm like, why is Richie Rich hanging out with these kids? Um, and wait a minute, is that Casper the Ghost? And I realized someone, you know, the comic industry, the, this this company that owned the, all these characters, just made a completely updated version of the show and threw it out because there's 50 million channels and there's yeah. a room for content anywhere. Um, so robots, robots, uh, uh, you know, uh, Roy Batty. Uh, maybe I wasn't a kid back then, but there's something uh, about watching the arc of that character from Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, ending in the in the end, being more human than the person he was saving, uh, you know, was uh, really said again in, in a world where the standard robot is danger, danger, Will Robinson. Yeah. Uh, you know, seeing a robot thinking and doing uh, was so much more interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I guess in that sense, you could throw in um you know, some of the, the, the robots from the Alien series, uh, right. you know, originally a villain and then not. And uh, I just always, uh, maybe it plays into why I do AI work nowadays, but understanding uh, that systems that think, whether they think like us or not, still have a rich inner life. And seeing that portrayed on screen, I think is, it helps. Yeah. Are, are you into Westworld at all? I have watched uh, the first season and I intend to explore all the rest now that uh, that is how we can entertain ourselves. Uh, but I haven't, I, I, you're welcome to spoil anything for me. I'm a big kid, but uh, I haven't caught more than the first season yet. Although, of course, I did see not the Westworld, interesting, uh, Future World, the sequel to Westworld. Uh, really oh, the, the terrible 70s movie, 70s right? sci-fi stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Michael Crichton, um, pulling out the the worst of his screenwriting capabilities. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, back then, again, it seems like everything was fembots and uh, really hacky attempts at these sorts of ideas and um, seeing much more sophisticated takes yeah. is interesting to me. Although I have to say literature, if you really want to explore big ideas in intelligence, it's still in books. I, yeah. I I don't know that I've seen a truly exceptional look at how something thinks differently than we do outside of written word. Mm. That's great. Uh, the next question is, what's your guilty pleasure? Oh, my goodness. My guilty pleasure. Um, I don't know that it's that guilty, but uh, when I was little, uh, I watched... I probably watched more cartoons than I slept. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was a huge part of my, I didn't do any school work. There's reasons why I have a complex personal history. I would just watch Scooby-Doo and Transformers and anything. If, if yeah. it was on, it was cartoon, I'd watch anything. So now I'm all grown up and I'm supposedly very sophisticated. <laughs> uh, and so I watch uh, anything I can get my hands on here. So Bojack Horseman and the Venture Brothers. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the weirder and more challenging Rick and Morty, uh, you know, the better. So uh, there's yeah. something, I, again, it's probably not a guilty pleasure. I, I just feel yeah. like in it's many domains, <laughs> yeah, these things are exploring ideas. Uh, they're, they're able to push limits. 
yeah. in ways that most live action stuff isn't able to do. And absolutely, and be funny in a really rude, in your face way at the same time. Yeah. Uh, last question. We'll go with. Uh, do you have a karaoke song? Your go-to karaoke song. I do not have a go-to karaoke song. Uh, my quality of voice uh, rivals only that of certain kinds of uh, yaks and um, John Lovett's annoying character from long ago. Yeah. Uh, having said that, I do have a theme song. Uh, oh, okay. It's, it's a bit of a deep cut, uh, but you might know it if you're a Stevie Wonder fan. It is You Haven't Done Nothing. Uh, so if I could afford the licensing rights... Every time I walk up onto a stage, uh, you would hear, you haven't done nothing. It would be a great walk on stage because it has a big, bold sound. Uh, yeah. It is great 70s funk, but it's also a great reminder. Um, mm -hmm. We're all amazed by all the things uh, you say that you do, but you haven't done nothing. Uh, you know, I, I, I run a think tank where we help people for free. Uh, it'd be really easy to get a big head about it. Uh, but the truth is, I haven't done anything. So, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly if I think I'm anyone's uh, hero or saint come to to save, you know, oh God, what this problem really needs is a good rich white person. Uh, <laughs> getting that reminder that I haven't done anything is is incredibly important. And, and, it, and it keeps you keeps you hungry and keeps you working hard. Uh, It's it's smart. Yeah. It's really smart. It's a good mindset. Uh, I, I think you could. I don't know if you need to license it to come on stage, do you? Like I, I I've been playing. I have no idea. I've been um, playing entrance music for my talks. Uh, I, I, whenever I do an international talk, I put "Born in the USA" just so like it seems to be I'm the only American on the times I've been talking. Uh, so I just go super obnoxious with a montage of a America uh, gifs behind me. Uh, but I think I th I think the next talk you give, you definitely got to throw that out. We won't tell okay. Stevie. Uh, I'm all in. And Stevie, if you're listening, please do not ruin my life with a massive lawsuit. <laughs> if Stevie Wonder is listening for this, I would. it would be incredible. Uh, I'll, I'll help with the lawsuit. Um, so I was excited to have you on your talk at 99U. Uh, inspired me and changed my perspective, which is you know, more than you can even expect when you go to a conference. And I love that you call yourself a professional mad scientist. What, is, what, what do you do as a professional mad scientist? <laughs> well, you know, I, I started perhaps more modestly um, as a theoretical neuroscientist, which, let's be frank, sounds like a pretty bullshit title right from the start. Um, <laughs> I, I often joke that if you don't know what a theoretical neuroscientist is, just substitute the word lazy for theoretical, because um, we don't even bother doing anything with brains. We just build machine learning systems and train them on first principles. So, it's, you know, it's kind of like theoretical physics, but for the brain. Yeah. And, um, and, and I totally fell into it. Uh, I, I thought I'd be a wet neuroscientist. Even that I came to after a coin toss. I literally, I tried to figure <laughs> out which degrees I could finish in a single year. Uh, and I, like I said, I have an unusual personal life history. Um, so uh, I'm, you know, 29 and I have come out of being homeless uh, and I'm thinking I want to restart my life and I don't want to spend four years doing it. So I um, flipped a coin uh, to choose between, actually there were three choices, math, 
uh, and economics and uh, cognitive neuroscience. Uh, I'm very snobby. I didn't look at any non-STEM fields. Um, right. uh, I love them now, but back then, no. So <laughs> I, I tossed out math right away because I thought, what am I ever going to do with math? Little did I know. <laughs> uh, so I flipped a coin between economics and cognitive neuroscience. It came up heads. Uh, so I, I ended up in that field. I took my first and only ever programming course and uh, got a perfect score in the class. And the professor recommended me to work in this place called the Machine Perception Lab. They were doing a CIA-sponsored project for real-time lie detection off of raw video, just watching people's faces to tell if they were lying. This is 20 years ago. So wow. what may sound like, uh, uh, yeah, I assume that goes on every time I look at my iPhone, uh, which... <laughs> Uh, ironically, that is my lab. Uh, the lab spun off as a startup, got bought by Apple. So literally, when you look at the iPhone and it, your face turns on, unlocks your phone, or you use an emoji, we worked on that stuff 20 years ago. Wow. With money from the CIA. And now it animates cats on your phone. So um, <laughs> you, must be, you must be proud. <laughs> I, I am so proud. Uh, I'm, I'm also, of course, so proud that algorithms like this are being used in cruel ways around the world. But <laughs> this is one of the lessons about technology is, um, it, you know, it is good or bad because we do good or bad things with it. Right. Uh, I, I'm not ducking the responsibility of uh, playing a role in that decision. But the reality is um, anything that can save a life can take a life. Uh, mm. And it's worth really being honest with ourselves about that. Okay, mm. so um, back to me. <laughs> uh, so I, I got recommended to work in this lab. I'd, I'd never done work like this before. I didn't know anything about machine. I'm a little learning how to program at the same right. time that I'm building a system that locates your philtrum. This is the little fold right under your nose. Mm. Uh, so that was my undergraduate honors thesis. Um, done in a single year, along with all of my other classes, was a, a machine vision system that could find pupils and filtrums. And I just got hooked. It was amazing. You could build a machine that could learn to recognize a smile. Uh, you know, there are a lot of debates about, uh, out and about now, uh, can machine vision uh, really be used to decide who gets a job? Oh my goodness, it absolutely should not. Uh, right. It is not ready for any kind of work like that. It is, it, there are bias issues, there are all sorts of problems. But can it see a smile? Yes, something that seems so fundamentally human, right. a system like this really could. And, and even back then we could do it. And, and seeing that and then thinking about, well, does this tell me anything about how my brain works? Does artificial intelligence tell me something about natural intelligence and vice versa. Mm. And that was it. I was hooked off to Carnegie Mellon to do my PhD in, in theoretical neuroscience. Okay. Oh my goodness. None of this is what you asked. Huh. Um, so uh, after that, I was I at Stanford this. and UC Berkeley. Mm. Um, I loved being a scientist. Loved it. I could care less about publishing papers. I <clears throat> hated writing grant proposals, but I really love science. Uh, and then my wife and I had an idea for startup doing AI and education. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a terrible entrepreneur as it turns out. I have no business instincts whatsoever, <laughs> but you know, we got lucky. We, uh, had some successes, uh, sold the company and uh, then I started another one. 
and then another one. And then I was a chief scientist and another one, and then a, a chief scientist and then another. And so mm-hmm. five uh, companies later and two times as a chief scientist, I kind of have my choice of what I want to do. And I love science, but I love solving problems the way you get to in a startup. Right. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to start this lab uh, called Socos Labs. And people can just bring us problems or we can come up with things ourselves. And I'm, I mean, anything that involves people. Right. Uh, Dr. Ming, my daughter has 500 seizures a day. Please save her life. Wow. Uh, Dr. Ming, my company um, doesn't seem to be able to retain women. Uh, please help us. Um, our country doesn't know what to do about education uh, inequality or the world doesn't know what to do about AI and ethics. Uh, I don't think I have some magical insight that no one else does. But what I've got is a little team I've put together and a willingness to say, we won't work for you, but we will work for the problem. Mm. And if I think my team can make a difference, I'll pay for everything. And if we come up with any kind of a solution, we'll give it all away for free. So it turns out truly to be the worst business idea ever. (laughs) Yeah, you're a terrible Um, business. Uh, yes, I'm really leaning into Clearly, that part. Yeah. Lean into your strengths, I think, yeah, is the yeah. takeaway of this whole podcast. Uh, so uh, so we started this thing, and it's been just amazing. And I was trying to understand, God, what the hell do I call myself nowadays? I still feel like I'm doing science, but the whole point is whatever has been tried in this problem space before hasn't worked. Right. If anyone's coming to us, then this is a truly messy problem. So let's do something crazy, uh, something mad. So I guess the way I put it is, uh, if we knew it would work, it wouldn't be science. Right. Um, We're not consultants. We're not engineers. We're starting from every problem starts from the problem. Are we even asking the right questions? Has nothing to do with machine learning or anything else. And then we slowly build from there. Uh, And so if we knew it would work, it wouldn't be science. And if anyone else was doing it, it wouldn't be mad. Right. Uh, so I thought I, I must be a, a mad scientist and proud of it. So this is what we do. It's incredible. And I love even the, the mission on your, on your site. It's exploring the future of human potential. Uh, yeah. How do you, how do you define that? Because it sounds like you, when you're talking about the problems people come to you with, they're so broad that it seems like there's no limit on them. But then the focus on exploring the future of human potential, how does that line up? Yeah, I I mean, we get asked about a lot of projects that um, we don't work on, not because they aren't important, but one, Mm. you know, there is a million geniuses and billions of dollars going towards, uh, I would normally say cancer, but how about COVID right now? Right. Uh, Although we have had a chance to run a couple of models and I participated in a a Stanford conference actually this week. Um, But so we're really looking for problems which are either intractable or uh, maybe even unrecognized Mm. uh, types of problems. But the other is it's about people. Um, So I don't do a lot of work in climate change, even though I care a great deal about it. um, Because apart from perhaps behavioral uh, uh, aspects of it, because it's not what I'm passionate about. What I'm passionate about What I feel a purpose around, particularly given the nature of my personal life story, is what would the world be like if everyone had this chance to do the same things I get to do every day? Uh, I fundamentally believe, as as a point of faith, if nothing else, 
that everyone is amazing. And, and I mean everyone, mm-hmm. uh, but the vast majority of us never have a chance to actually live out that life. And I don't mean this in a self-help sort of sense. I mean right. this in, we have studied the effects of poverty, of inequality. We've looked at the impact of mental health around the world. Uh, we know some things that sound trivial, but imagine how many people they impact, like interviews for jobs. Don't predict anything. And yet that is probably the one universal uh, aspect most people have about getting a job is doing an interview. Right. Are there better ways of doing these things? So while it may sound like I work on a lot of different kinds of products, uh, projects, uh, in reality, I see them all just being this one core point, which is I want my kids to grow up in that other world. Uh, I think that their lives will be vastly better if I spend my life helping people other than them. They're going to have an amazing life no matter what. Growing up in Berkeley, California, uh, even with as hard as it is right now, my whole family's here in my office with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got this uh, amazing internet. No one else is here. We're able to all be in class. My kids are in class and I'm, yeah. I'm doing a podcast and my wife is <laughs> the head of uh, research for the San Francisco school system. And you know we're all doing our thing uh, in a way that almost makes it like a weird kind of summer camp. Yeah, uh, This is not what it's like for most people um, right now. And my kids have challenges. My son has diabetes. In fact, maybe one of the first projects um, I ever did along the vein of mad science is I hacked all of his equipment and built one of the first AIs for diabetes. Um, That was pretty mad because it turns out I broke a whole bunch of federal laws. But, (laughs) um, you know, um, imagine if every parent had the chance to feel the same thing I felt, that they were the one superhero that Mm -hmm. that could actually make a difference in their child's life. Uh, And then those kids had the chance to grow up in a world where they are well taken care of. And believe me, I am not pejoratizing parents that are struggling. Yeah. I would be too. I, I find it hard to be a parent. Yeah. So what if we all work together and support each other? And all I can say is as ludicrous as this whole proposition is, I don't see any way to not try. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And yeah, I, I, what I, I saw something recently even talking about this, how growing up in a stressful environment, and I think maybe it was coming out of the kids at the border being separated from their parents and the traumatic effects even that for a small amount of time would even have on their, their brain development and all of that uh, is just... Long-term stress yeah. is neurolytic. Uh, it um, destroys brain cells. It affects uh, the development trajectory of brains. Uh, there was a body of research published in Nature and Nature Neuroscience, in fact, several years ago, and updated since, showing that something as basic as working memory span, like how many things can you remember in the moment, mm-hmm. is uh, causally reduced by childhood household stress. So you can imagine what it means if you lock a kid up in isolation away from their family after they've gone through the stress of, you know, marching halfway across Central America, just across a border. And uh, now they're in this place, even under the best. We don't even have to imagine uh, the worst of what those environments are like to clearly understand that who these kids were when they're born 
is not who they are now. Uh, mm. And one of the, the real tragedies here is that kind of very low level general cognitive uh, uh, quality. Boy, by the time you're about five to eight, uh, that's uh, not something that can be easily changed. Uh, I guess I'll put it in that weak terms. We may be able to stay stronger. It's just that's who you are for the rest of your life. So we have that chance to make a difference early in a kid's life. And instead, we're making it worse. Uh, And I I get it. it, For many people, these aren't our kids. Uh, Their parents are breaking a law is how they see it. And yet we damage ourselves. The harder we make life in uh, El Salvador, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chiapas, the worse, I guarantee you, the worse we will make life here in the United States. Right. It's, it's incredible that you have broken kids that we don't protect enough, and then you get broken adults, and, and we're not doing enough to, to it, it's a pretty simple equation that it doesn't seem like we're putting enough effort into solving. Uh, and it's, it would probably solve a lot of our problems. <laughs> Uh, you would think so. And, I, and you know, this is not, um, you know, okay, so uh, a bleeding heart liberal is on a podcast expressing uh, disdain for my well-hewn political philosophy. Uh, right. You know, this is uh, James Heckman, Nobel Prize winner at the University of Chicago, and uh, Raj Chetty at Harvard, almost certain to win a Nobel Prize sometime in his life. Uh, I, I think of Raj's paper uh, that sort of has gone by the public moniker of Lost Einsteins. He looks at uh, he just this amazing story of how this guy uh, actually started a startup because he saw that the IRS was soliciting um, proposals for managing all of their records. So this economist started a startup just so that he could build a system to manage that data and then study it. Mm. And so he did it. And of course, with permission from the IRS, he now studies it and he has all of these amazing findings uh, about intergenerational wealth transition transfer and inequality. But one of the ones that really stuck out was this lost Einstein's. So we've got a bunch of kids and let's break them up really uh, simply. We've got wealthier kids, middle-class kids and working class kids. Um, well, those wealthy kids, if, if we academically match them with the other groups, uh, uh, one of those kids from a wealthier family is 10 times as likely to earn a patent in their lifetime, not than a poor kid, than a middle-class kid. Wow. Same academic achievement, and yet 10 times as likely to come up with a cure for diabetes, uh, Ten time, or at least to patent it, right, right. 10 times as likely to you know, have those opportunities to make a difference in everyone else's life. Uh, Kids from the wealthy kids, from the lowest math quintile, are actually slightly more likely to get a patent in their lifetime than poor kids from the highest math quintile. Um, Well, boy, look around the world. There's a lot more poor kids than rich kids. Uh, What if they all had a chance to come up with a cure for COVID? to come up with a vaccine? Mm -hmm. What if they all had a chance uh, to build a better video chat system that can't get Zoom bombed? What if they all had a chance to build something that made the rest of our lives better? Uh, You know, the world is clearly not zero sum, uh, and yet that's how we politically play this game. And I, I, 
I challenge myself uh, all mm. the time. I read economic and um, uh, behavioral research from people with whom I don't agree. Uh, and here is the game. You don't get to just dismiss it, say they're mm. wrong or they ran their experiment wrong. What they published is true. And you need to then explain to yourself and everyone uh, uh, following your work uh, why um, your story of the world maybe either remains true or how it needs to change. Mm -hmm. And I found that incredibly useful. And more often than not, you have to change your story. You don't just get to throw this stuff away. Right. But I don't find anything quite as persuasive as the entire tax history of the United States saying that uh, there is an incredibly untapped potential in this country alone. And we just let it go by because, I don't know, it seems like it's not worth the effort or maybe those kids mm. don't look the same as my kids. Uh, yeah. We can pick all sorts of reasons. Right. Uh, we don't need to be imagine malice, uh, just uh, a little bit of maybe some fear or maybe just uh, this idea that yeah. if everyone would work harder, if you could only choose to work harder, your life would be better. You could choose to be beautiful. You could choose to be rich. Right. This sort of magic wand of choice is a real deep American ethic. And you can't ignore it. At the same time, you realize um, choice, uh, just like economics, is inequitably distributed. Right. And most people do not have the opportunity to make the same choices that my kids will have for themselves. Right. And that is where we need to change. Well, and I think even in the most selfish sense, investing in other people's children and their success uh, could benefit you greatly. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, if, if you just solely want to be a, a selfish person, it's like if we enable all these people to be amazing, as you put it, then what are the benefits to me? It might be a cure for a disease I may have someday or better entertainment or whatever it is. It's all going to come back around. I mean, it's it's actually there's there's some really basic things to it. Like um, I, again, one of my companies was one of the first to ever do AI for hiring. Uh, you know what predicts who will be successful on the job, and the results of that research were fascinating. And one of the first things we found is all of the standard things we use. What school did you attend? Uh, you know, what was your last job? What is your name? Uh, we're not supposed to use that, but mm -hmm. boy, do we! Uh, turns out none of those are particularly predictive. Uh, certainly not when I know other things about you. Uh, and the funny thing is, for example, the university uh, that you choose is this big predictor of whether people will get jobs and promotions. Right. Uh, and yet it turns out the CEOs themselves, it doesn't play that big a role. Mm. Uh, CEOs are much less likely to attend elite universities than the people working for them, which is very strange and kind of speaks yeah. to this issue. I love Bojack Horseman. I love Rick and Morty and community. Um, you know, uh, imagine uh, maybe The Simpsons was, uh, the writer's room was strictly Harvard uh, Lampoon. Right. Um, and I love the fact that Futurama actually has a math proof in it, a, a real proof developed in the Harlem Globetrotters episode. But, <laughs> and yes, I really am a nerd for this stuff. But, um, uh, you know, imagine even at that level, uh, 
the idea that if you hadn't attended an elite university, you don't get to create content. You don't get to share yeah. your art or your uh, songs with the world. Um, you know, most of the people leading these shows and so forth are are don't have that kind of uh, don't bother you know, that, that kind of McKinsey, uh, ideal resume. Uh, and yet we run so much of our country on the assumption that you have to strive for all of these specific outcomes. Uh, I, I guess the only thing I could say is, uh, short of actually killing yourself, you can't ruin your life much more than I did in my early life. Mm. Um, very much self-inflicted, but ending up homeless and, oh my goodness, I have the most amazing life today. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you think you get an A minus in school and your life is ruined, boy, you can do a lot worse than an A minus, let me tell you. You can actually pronounce my college transcript <laughs> uh, from the, you know, when I flunked out and then I homeless and then when I went back and it's just, I'm the same person, at least in theory, yeah. but it was totally different. And yeah. that just tells me, in some sense, everybody could do the same. Right. Uh, and, you know, I want to watch their show. I want to hear their song. I, I want my family to benefit from uh, their their medical research. Uh, I want their startup to enrich my life. Uh, mm. I, I want all of it. I'm greedy for all of that. I'm mm -hmm. wildly selfish for human potential. Yeah. Well, what were the, you were saying that, you know, so these pedigree indicators that people use or even names, and, and those biases that a lot of times people get hired for, what were the indicators that you were able to tap into to lead to more successful outcomes with hiring? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in, in some sense, the sorts of things I might list will sound like, well, duh, if if we could actually measure that, of course we'd use it. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is, things like resilience uh, or growth mindset, uh, for those of you um, psychology nerds out there, um, uh, behavioral economics concepts like subjective utility, um, uh, grit, uh, perspective taking, social skills, creativity related skills. Mm. Uh, we nowadays have a list of 50 of them, but when we were just getting started, uh, I became the chief scientist of this company building AI for hiring. Well, you know, the one thing I've never had to do in my entire life to date, interview for uh -huh. a job. So what the hell do I know? I I, right. I was a neuroscientist that then started an education company. I don't know anything. So being a scientist, I did what just seemed natural. I read research. And it turns out there's 100 years of research on what makes a great employee. And so then I thought, all right, well, there's all this really great research about how resilient people are more successful in the job, that it's a better predictor than almost anything else. Okay. Well, let's just imagine a world in which I could actually measure that. Uh, how could we build that into our system? Well, we we back in the day, uh, it'd be a different story today with all of the issues of privacy and, um, and equity going on. But back in the day, we would just wander through the internet, you know, a hundred different websites, and we collect your professional digital footprint. Uh, the one thing I will say in my own personal defense is, as a product, we only sold the positive. The one thing I insisted is we were never used as a tool that would say no to someone. Right, right. Um, which really isn't in our self-interest anyways. We want we want people to get hired. So right. like the, in a sense, you were our product. We were selling people. So we wanted them to find a job. Um, 
but again, it's a much more mature world with respect to some of these issues today. But we would right. collect all this data, and then I'd say, all right, what in this data, social media, your LinkedIn profile, your personal blog, the sites that you visit, what in this tells me anything about you? What would predict uh, the results of me giving you a traditional psychological resilience survey questionnaire? Mm. Um, and so we built that and, and then I tested it. And then we looked at growth mindset and we looked at working memory span. And sure enough, these things were not only predictive of people's success on the jobs, like way more than whether you went to Stanford or not. Um, and I should say a bachelor of computer science from Stanford was a positive predictor of people's ability to program, mm. uh, a huge predictor of their getting a job as a programmer. Mm -hmm. um, but a modest but positive predictor. But as soon as you threw something like resilience in, it was pretty trivial by comparison. Right. So, so we built these things, we tested them. And the one thing that was so great about it is, unlike a lot of these other measures, there was largely invariant to gender and race. There's some cultural dynamics that play in because it turns out people are resilient in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, um, but once you appreciated that, like one test does not fit all, then you could really surface what was hidden in them uh, and go to bat. So in fact, uh, Socos Labs is part of a World Bank group now called Hard to Measure Skills. And mm. we're looking globally at what it takes to measure the things that we truly want to measure when we're trying to make decisions. So how should countries make decisions about mental health or employment or uh, education. Well, this is how it ought to be done. Mm. Why should we do something different than what we know is true? Let's challenge the hard to measure stuff. Again, it's mad science. Um, yeah. Plenty of people are doing good work in more traditional assessment. So let's lean into something different. So yeah. uh, we have this giant list. We call it meta-learning, learning to learn. Uh, if you really okay. were thinking about, uh, let's say I'm a parent, I got two kids. Um, if I would ask myself, you know, my kids will be out on the job market, my son in 10 years, my daughter shortly after that, mm -hmm. um, what should they know in 10 years? What will give them a great life? I guarantee you anything I picked, whatever was the top skill now or the new hotness right here in the moment, 10 years from now, I would be shocked if anyone gets a job doing those things. Right. Uh, and let's take a very standard one. There have been future of work policy papers written by every major organization in the world. Every major consultancy firm, every government, every NGO has a future of work policy paper. And here is Vivian, the arrogant asshole. They're all wrong. <laughs> um, I'm a professional pompous jackass. Um, so they're all wrong. And I'm not saying they're wrong because they, they didn't think things through appropriately or they didn't, they're not good people. They I'm just don't simply know. <laughs> saying, for example, every single one of them recommends teaching people how to program. Yeah. Oh my goodness. If in 10 years, the vast majority of code isn't written by machines, I will be stunned. Right. Uh, uh, will programming be used by people? Of course it will. Um, right. You know, people doing sophisticated creative work. Will boilerplate code be written by people? Uh, boy, I, I just can't see it that in the future. Um, right. So how do I make a recommendation of what skill uh, kids or workers or anyone ought to know in 10 years if the one thing I do know is any recommendation will be wrong? Well, what if we built people that could figure it out for themselves? 
Mm -hmm. uh, what if we taught people how to learn uh, meta-learning? And mm -hmm. it turns out, if you want to know what the ingredients of that are, they are the very things we discovered, uh, at least uh, the first began to surface in our work using AI for hiring. Um, be resilient, have a growth mindset. Oh, and if you're not familiar with that term, it is um, when you fail, it is an opportunity to learn, yeah. not a reflection of you as a person. Right. Uh, that would be a fixed mindset. Um, uh, do you have a sense of purpose? Uh, I'm writing a whole book actually about uh, called Small Sacrifices about the economics and, and the psychology, but also just personal stories uh, about purpose. And it turns out, uh, you know, purpose is not something that you know your marketing uh, guys write up on the wall. Purpose is something that's bigger than you are. Purpose is something right. that takes more than a lifetime to complete. It could be spiritual, but I'm not a spiritual person. It can be very grounded and humanist. Uh, yeah. Whatever it is, it is something you're willing to make a sacrifice for. Well, people um, that are resilient, uh, that have large working memory spans, that have good perspective-taking skills, uh, good lateral reasoning and creativity, strong sense of purpose, they live longer. They earn more money. They go further in education. They have more friends. This is my favorite metric of all time. They walk faster when they're 65. Uh, I'm not saying one single quality about a person predicts everything about their lifetime. Absolutely not. But I am saying when we look across all of these uh, as the rich life that a person leads, people that score higher in these qualities uh, as a population have better lives. And because they have better lives, everyone around them does as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what we look at. And again, it may sound like, well, of course I would hire people like this. Uh, but here's the thing I really want to challenge people, particularly right now, mm -hmm. 10 million layoffs over the last two weeks in the yeah. United States, or that's just people applying, you know, uh, if you aren't getting any Uber rides right now, uh, that's not a layoff. That's just right. someone saying there's not enough people, so I'm not going to go out. So we're seeing huge numbers of people. 70% of the Indian workforce is in the informal economy, migrant labor, all being sent home in, you know, COVID uh, outbreak, uh, you know, walking right. in some case, hundreds of kilometers home. Uh, all of these people don't lay them off. I, I know that this is idealized, but this right. is the thing. Don't lay them off. Invest in them. Uh, look at it we're, we're, we're like you build a bridge. Uh, this is the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, this is um, all of those programs invest in our human capacity, uh, your organizational capacity. Uh, it is brutal, but I'm not laying anyone off, not because I'm such an amazing and wonderful person, but because... We have learned to do things as a team that if I let my people go, I will simply lose. It will not yeah. come back to me. I'll have to build it all again from scratch. And uh, maybe we don't see every member of our workforce that way, but the most exceptional companies are defined by what sometimes economists call intangible capital. Mm. Um, yep. So the same stuff I talk about at the individual human level, you know, resilience and purpose and working memory span, all this, this plays out at the organizational level. Uh, and so we have this breather here. Uh, strangely enough, it, 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 I'm not going to play down the, the outbreak. Uh, right. It's horrible. But it's also this opportunity for us to take a breath and say, all right, I don't have anything for 
half of my workforce, 90% of my workforce, maybe all of them. I don't have anything for them to do. But maybe I'm going to take a little bit of money from the Fed uh, to support this. I'm going to keep them employed as much as I can. And if all that means is they're going to learn, I'm going to pay them to go to school, then do that. Uh, and that could be very grounded things. You know, send them to your famous, your, your favorite online uh, education platform right. and teach them actual tangible skills. Uh, it turns out learning how to factorize a polynomial is a genuinely valuable skill in this life. Hmm. Um, but hey, it's also this opportunity to invest even more deeply in these meta-learning qualities because what got those 50 constructs, as we wonkily call it, onto my list is one, they are in fact measurable. Uh, two, they are highly correlated with, and in many cases, demonstrably causally related to long-term positive life outcomes. And three, and most importantly to me, they are intervenable. These are qualities that you can change about a person. Mm. Some of these low-level cognitive ones, like working memory and numeracy and literacy, you really need to get at very early in someone's life. But I have the pleasure of doing a lot of work in education, so I have a chance to work on projects like that. But right. the rest of them, these emotional uh, intelligence-related, social skills, creativity, metacognition, your ability to manage yourself, these are things you can learn to do throughout your entire life. And even better, this, the single best way to learn how to do them Spend time with people that already have those qualities. Role modeling is one of the most powerful mm. ways that parents transmit uh, these qualities to their kids. In the absence of a parent with this quality, it is the people that the kids spend time with. Uh, in the absence of that, and we've gotten the chance to do this in some of our workforce research, I take a team of 10 people, uh, two of whom are high in resilience and the rest not so much, and they work together. And this is not overnight stuff. Uh, right. But it turns out COVID won't be done overnight. Um, it turns out a couple of years later, all of those eight other people are higher in resilience. Mm. Uh, you know, seeing that seemingly osmotic effect at play, uh, it just tells you, God, what if we did this intentionally? What if we engineered our teams so that everyone complemented everyone else? Mm. Uh you know, I don't mean that they're nice to each other. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the social skills of an autistic badger. But we're, <laughs> what we're talking about here is complementary diversity. So everyone yeah. has weaknesses and strengths that complement the rest of the group. And yes, that means personal life experience, but it also means these meta-learning qualities uh, and even hard skills. That kind of complementary team, you add in uh, team level trust uh, for some great research at Google, and suddenly you have this amazing team, and you can't even put your finger on why it is that they succeed where the other teams don't. Uh, it, it, so I just look at that and I say, yeah. it's all crazy, it's mad science, and yet the research is clear, you can make a difference in people's lives, and this is our opportunity to actually do it with incredible intention, Mm -hmm. uh, and with an eye towards, uh, I'm going to invest in what my organization will be after this is all over. I'm not right. going to start from scratch. I'm going to come back when this is done, and we will be a better organization than when we started. Wow. And, I, and this brings up so many questions now, but even the, like the learning through osmosis, I've, I thought recently about what 
has made me succeed. And a lot of those qualities just learned from watching my dad, like who was an entrepreneur who, who changed jobs and careers multiple times and going like, hey, I might not have it figured out right now, but I'm going to figure it out. And so it made me confident to quit my job and go freelance and be like, oh, screw it, I'll figure it out. And to even, and then from all the interviews through the past three seasons of Overshare, time and time again, you're like, oh, where did you learn that? And it's like, oh, my, my mom is creative like that or my neighbor or, and you just, you have to see it. And, 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 or at least seeing it makes you know it's possible. And then you start to learn those behaviors. So it's, it's really interesting to think about that in the context of a team. Now, if people, so I have this question first. We're talking about these skills. If people are sitting at home right now and want to learn some of these and they're, they're not in teams where they can learn them or model them, what can they do right now to start improving some of those skills? Yeah, so um, let's just be honest about some things. Uh, yeah. These are hard. This, these qualities take time to change. Uh, you want to become more resilient, the, the most important ingredient to a resilience building experience is failure. How can mm -hmm. you become resilient when the very definition, at least at a psychological level of resilience, right. is uh, resilient people fail and yet push through and succeed at the other end. Uh, so if you don't experience failure, you can't become more resilient. Uh, so in that sense, I, I think there's probably, for one thing, um, some good literature out there. I, mm -hmm. I will freely acknowledge uh, I have something to sell in this space or I will soon. So uh, I've been writing for some time a book called How to Robot Proof Your Kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and it explores- I see it over your of, shoulder. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. it's right there. I have my, my list of my, the books we're working on here uh, behind me. In fact, that far one called The Long Caravan is in fact a piece of uh, fantasy that I'm writing because- um, Amazing. When you're truly self-deluding, why stop at uh, nonfiction? <laughs> um, so we've got my work on uh, neuroscience behind me uh, and then how to robot proof your kids. I lean over and you can see this is our education uh, piece. And then the text on being different is about our work in inclusion, small sacrifices about our work in, in purpose and emotional intelligence uh, and some other books on top of that. Um, so one is there are things you can read, uh, but this is different than... Mm learning how to program or learning how to factorize a polynomial or learning the facts of history. Uh, this is about changing yourself in a deeper way. Uh, ironically, I think in some sense, uh, this is much more like training a neural network, uh, yeah. an artificial intelligence neural network, uh, than most of what our human experience is like, because this is about experience and the slower change that comes with experience. Uh, so, uh, what does this really mean? There are some good uh, apps that people are beginning to build out there. And again, we're working on some ourselves. Uh, so again, the thing behind me, Muse, uh, is a system that we built, we give away for free, and it's to help their parents uh, develop meta-learning qualities in their kids. And instead of being a game that kids play, uh, I'm not big on gamification for learning. We actually just built a system that says, hey, parent, do you have 20 minutes free tonight? Here is our best guess uh, at how you should spend those 20 minutes, a little game you could play together with your kid tonight. So for example, uh, the first two people ever signed up were my son and my daughter. And mm -hmm. uh, I really loved this one. Um, uh, we, it said, go ask 
uh, Athena, my daughter, how a toilet works and then go research it together and had some support uh, beyond that. Uh, and I got to admit, I got some pretty fancy smancy degrees and yet toilets are like, what? <laughs> so I push the thing and the water empties out, but then it fills yeah. up and yeah. what is going on? So <laughs> rather than look it up online, we took our toilet apart. Uh, she and I together, you know, she's a, she, at the time, she's a five-year-old girl. Um, it was a problem solving. So we're looking at those sorts of qualities, but also agency. Mm -hmm. So many little girls get the message that they're not supposed to do things. Right. Uh, so going and doing this stuff together. And then, of course, we're doing it together. So that's the vision behind uh, Muse, what we now call Muse at Home. Uh, and we're working on a version now called Muse at 20. Um so same underlying science and the sort of machine learning we're using to support it. Um, but, uh, you know, whether you're 20 or not, how do I just sort of launch my life? Uh, I know what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be me. I'm supposed to uh, tell my boss or my teachers when I think they're wrong. I'm supposed to push back. But just knowing that that's true is wildly different. Uh, than actually living your life that way. And so we thought, all right, what if we could help people find those actual experiential moments where they could go and do it? Uh, so here's the one thing I can offer. We're, uh, because everyone's stuck at home and these some of these books won't be out for a little while, um, they're like in a giant holding pattern coming in for a publishing mm -hmm. landing. Boy, the publishing <laughs> industry. Having now dealt with them, I am unsurprised as to why it's dying. Um, <laughs> so um, we're going to put a bunch of handbooks together that are kind of have what I think are some really uh, uh, well-written stories uh, behind all this stuff, just distill it down to the facts and the crib notes version of these things, uh, and maybe just offer them up uh, as uh, PDFs on our site. Yeah. And so if you visit uh, socos.org, uh, there's nothing uh, about those up yet, but sign up. We do this little fun thing called the Socos Academy. Sign up. Uh, so it doesn't cost anything. We don't share the data or sell it or do anything with it. Uh, and as these things become available, um, we'll let you know and you can sign up and just download it and read through the research that supports everything I've been talking about today. Well, I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes so you can check it out there. Uh, I also find that the things that have kind of uh, grown my resiliency and, and grown our resiliency throughout our lives are often the things that have shame attached to them. And whether it's a failure of a business or a project or, you know, homelessness or, you know, a, a rough household or whatever it is. And to know that those things are also the things that make you and, and, and kind of learn from those and, and remove the shame. It's a thing that you know, I encountered or I happened or I attempted, uh, it just, if you can separate those things, then it becomes the foundation of your resiliency and when you use it as a little, tool, right? I was supposed to win a Nobel Prize. Uh, I don't mean like, you know, the Nobel yeah. committee reached out to my parents and said, <laughs> this is the expectation, but boy, right. this was the expectation that was made clear to me. Um, mm -hmm. And not in a harsh way. Uh, my kids weren't tiger, my kids, my parents weren't tiger parents, but they right. just expected this. And the more I tried to be that person, the worse everything got. Uh, and I ended up homeless. So I went from uh, everything about my life 
was failure to live up to that mm. ideal of myself, an ideal I held as well, to right. no illusions anymore. Uh, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm looking at just being able to pay my rent as a huge accomplishment. Um, right. And where do you go from there? And yeah, I wouldn't wish my life experiences on my worst enemy, uh, not those early uh, life ones. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, I clearly am a better person for it. And what I want to know is how could you give that or at least something like that to everyone without having to put them through a crucible? Uh, I, yeah. I don't think we need to risk suicide uh, to figure out who a person should be. And in fact, this is one of the, yeah. the research on purpose is what's very clear is you don't find a purpose. You construct one. Uh, uh, maybe it's not completely arbitrary, but there's no magic thing that's waiting for you. Uh, it's simply, in fact, the psychological construct isn't purpose. It's strength of purpose. Uh, it mm. isn't the thing that you believe in. It's that you believe in something bigger than you, uh, and you're willing to make sacrifices around it. So in that sense, uh, of course, we transmit that to our kids when we role model for them, whether or not we intend to. So, uh, right. you know, I, having done a lot of work in education and, and the, the nature of the work my wife does, I frequently get asked after a talk, you know, uh, how can I be a better parent? And let me tell you, I am not the world's best parent. Um, I am definitely party mom. Um, when my <laughs> wife is gone taking a trip somewhere, it is total uh, party time in the Ming household. <laughs> but uh, I do give this very honest uh, piece of feedback, which is if you want to be a better parent, be a better person. Uh, and maybe that doesn't feel very helpful, but there is nothing you will give your kids that's more meaningful than who you are. So mm. be the person you want your kids to be. And that is the single best thing you could do to make them that person. Uh, mm. So, you know, here we are. Uh, and I think conveying a certain amount of humility is an incredibly important part of that. Uh, yeah. You know, shame is, is uh, a horrible thing, but being able to break through that, recognize, you know, the thing that I truly learned when I was homeless, when I was thinking that there was a time, a year, 1995, when I had a calendar and I was literally crossing off days. When I reached the end of the calendar, that was going to be it. And, um, and in the end, I didn't pull the trigger. But what it left me with is an understanding that it isn't about me and it isn't about whether I'm happy. Uh, I wouldn't have used this terminology at the time, but I recognize now in retrospect that uh, is, am I serving a purpose? Uh, there is something bigger than me. And in this case, bigger than me is simply the idea uh, that other people could lead amazing lives uh, and maybe that I could do something to help with that. Uh, and that was it. it. And that little spark meant that I didn't shoot myself in the head. And it meant that I could be honest with everyone and tell them how low I'd fallen and that I needed help. Uh, and I fortunately, mm. uh, unlike a lot of people that were homeless, I, my parents were still there for me. And when I was ready, they, they had a place for me. And then suddenly it wasn't like it was overnight change. You don't go from that to right. suddenly, you know, getting honors in Stockholm. 
but I slowly crawled back out of that hole and then suddenly found myself with the opportunity to return to school. And then when I did, it was so different. Everything about my life was different. And boy, again, if you could give that to everyone, uh, I, I just couldn't imagine anything better. So, uh, yeah, some of these things are very hard to learn. I don't think it takes a couple of years uh, living in a car and, you know, a night with a gun to find something deeper. Uh, and so this is the idea is we can go through and, and do something better, whether we're talking about resilience or purpose or some basic things. I, I mean, read to your kids. Some of this is really uh, very mm-hmm. easily achievable. Even if you don't know how to read, talk to your kids, talk to them like they're adults, right. uh, rich, mm-hmm. uh, don't like language after they passed a, a fairly early period of development is a big predictor of longer outcomes. Mm. And there there are small things we can do and large that can help change who we are. But let's just be honest, it is hard work. So if you're not feeling like what you're doing is hard, then uh, don't expect change. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it, I, I think the, the idea of purpose has had more meaning to me in the last few years, especially since starting a company and identifying what I think my own personal mission and purpose is. How do you recommend Folks, like if someone's sitting here right now going like, I don't know what the hell my purpose is. <laughs> yeah. um, how, do you, how, how do you start to f- figure out what those, what, what, what can lead you down that path or at least help you identify what, what, maybe some of the work you can do or the questions you can ask to f- get some clarity around that? Yeah. And, and of course, people probably have heard a lot of different things. So, um, you know, do what you love or love what you do or, uh, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning or these various little rules of thumb. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've already given a little clue away or several about where I'm going to go with this, but we ran the study. Interestingly enough, right now, some of the most exciting work being done in COVID is using contact tracing. And the most effective way to do that, it's it's work that uh, wasn't pioneered in China, but was first launched there specifically around tracking COVID-19. And now there's a group at Stanford and a couple of other groups that are now testing this in the United States. And what it amounts to is putting a little app on your phone that has full access to your Bluetooth. And every time people with those apps come close to each other, they ping each other. And then the app knows you came in contact with this person. Of course, with the GPS and other thing, they can trace. So then the moment someone is diagnosed, they can perfectly trace out all of their contacts or likely contacts. And so stuff like this in uh, um, Wuhan and in Singapore and Mm -hmm. Taiwan has been incredibly effective at uh, tamping down on some of the results. Even if I'm a bit skeptical of some of the numbers out of China, uh, in Singapore and Taiwan, we're seeing these much better outcomes. And this is a big part of it. Well, interestingly, Uh, As I said, this wasn't developed just for COVID. Uh, So people have been doing this kind of like spontaneous social network tracking for a while using these Bluetooth methods and and others. So we got to do this in a big company, uh, nearly half a million people. Uh, But in this case, I was interested in what unmeasurable things predict productivity. Uh, So here I'm getting really wonky. Uh, If you build deep neural networks. I love it then the problem you're trying to solve is I have these thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of individual little nonlinear units 
processing information, sharing it with other units, and all of that produces a global outcome. You should turn left at this stop sign. You should play this go move. Uh, is there a giraffe in this picture? Uh, which is right or wrong? And if it's wrong, mm -hmm. one of the most standard ways of training your network is something called backpropagation. You just you take that wrongness and you propagate it back to the network. So it's called a credit assignment problem. Given all the complexities and the nonlinearities of how all those individual units made their decision that produce a collective outcome, how do I assign credit back when I'm right or wrong? Uh, so we have math around that and a variety of methods for doing so. And I thought, what if I could do something like that, but for a whole company? The company produces a global output, the, a division produces a, an immediate mm -hmm. output, a, a team produces an even lower level, and all of it comes back to people. If I could track the behaviors of the people, uh, and I could look at the standard things they track, you know, how much code do you write? Uh, uh, how often do you have meetings? How many campaigns does your marketing team put out? And if I could measure those, but I could measure deeper things. Who do you meet with? When? What do you talk about? Uh, how often are you meeting with people outside of your team versus inside your team and, and all this sort of thing. And we're looking of the unmeasurables. Of course, they're all measurable in my opinion, but of the traditionally unmeasurable things, what is predictive of the global output of the company? And it turns out, for example, something called collaborative leadership, um, something not unique to women, but we see it much more in uh, female employees than male employees. Plenty of male employees do it as well, but it's often what's called uh, a more uh, uh, female-associated quality. It is a huge predictor of the success of organizations, uh, and yet nobody gets promoted for being a collaborative leader because it essentially means you make other people better. Uh, so we were looking right. at all this sort of stuff, and amongst other things, I wanted to understand the role of purpose inside this big company. and we were looking at what behaviors the people engaged in best predicted uh, a more traditional survey-based assessment of purpose, which is how most of the research in that space gets done. And it turns out it's sacrifice. People engage in behaviors for which they would never receive a direct benefit. So in other words, uh, two people meet at the water cooler and they mm -hmm. chat. They're from completely different divisions in the company. They have nothing to do with one another. But we were able to actually say, wow, it turns out when uh, person A meets with person B, persons B, their team actually performs better. And we could see, and it was correlate, uh, temporarily correlated with their uh, meeting with person A and chatting with them. And in fact, you could build some econometric models that allow you to do something called causal inference, which is not the same thing as truly knowing that something is causally related, but it, it gives you some induction that, that maybe it is. And okay. so we could see, wow, uh, two things. One, sacrifice behavior was the single best behavioral correlate of purpose. And mm. people that engaged in that sort of behavior uh, ended up being more successful. Their teams were more successful, their companies were more successful. Companies that had more people engaging in those sorts of behavior outperform other companies in their market. And you have to appreciate what a paradox that is because mm -hmm. it, it is not a wild metaphor for me to say that the people that end up winning this great race of life are the ones that stop and help the other racers, which 
how does that make sense? It certainly is not what liberal economic theory says, you know, where we should all be rationally self-interested, sort of read, uh, you know, a good-natured asshole. Um, well, right. it turns out, yeah. while that makes sense in a, uh, a simplified model, it doesn't appear to be true uh, out in the real world. And so in this book, Small Sacrifices, that's part of the thing we're exploring is we can see clearly that it's true at the individual level. There is strong evidence now that it's true at the organizational level. So at the economic theory level, why is this happening? Why is irrational uh, community interest uh, actually producing better individual life outcomes. And so we got theories, but I would get really wonky if I started to go into it. All <laughs> I can say is uh, if you want to find a purpose, find the thing you're willing to make a sacrifice for. And, and let's mm -hmm. be clear, your your career is not a sacrifice, right? You You will benefit from that. Winning a gold medal, I mean, that's hard work. I'm not saying don't work hard, don't care about how your life turns out. But if you really want to know the thing um, that you might be amazing at. Who promised you you're going to love it on day one? Uh, who promised you you'd be good at it when you got started? What is the thing you are willing to make a sacrifice for? What is the thing you're willing to do even if no one ever patted you on the back or maybe even if they told you you were wrong? Uh, and, and let me add the hardest part of all of this. Um, the person you need to be most honest with is yourself. Because there is a trap here, which is you don't listen to other people. I do the thing because I think it's the right thing to do. No, you have to be your biggest self-critic and really push yourself. Um, uh, um, am I doing the right thing? It, is this the, the, the thing that I'm engaged in, is it truly producing the outcome that I think it's, it's supposed to be producing? Uh, and, you know, essentially it's a leap of faith. Because what I'm telling you is mm. if you want to find the thing, that ties to the best life outcomes. And again, we're talking about one construct out of many, many, but I think it's a pretty central mm. one. Then you need to be doing that uh, with complete uh, abandonment of whether it does have anything to do with your life. Uh, and so that's the sort of guide that I'm using today is mm. uh, if you want to find that thing, you could be great at. Uh, find the thing that you'd be willing to pay to do. Uh, find the thing that you would be willing uh, to be scorned for um, and then keep checking yourself. Uh, are they right about it? it? Why are they scornful of this thing? And let me say this to then everyone else. Uh, when someone lets their freak flag fly, celebrate them. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and I say this also more broadly as someone that builds AIs and AIs uh, are not magic and they don't substitute for human creativity, but they are powerfully augmenting of it. Uh, and that will have a lot of impact. If you do very routine work, even if you have an amazing advanced degrees, that routine work is going to slowly go away. Um, it's your creative potential mm -hmm. that's a value to the world. Um, so having said all of that, uh, again, you you need to be willing to follow your own muse uh, and get out there because it, it is what makes you unique, that makes you valuable in a world where the routine is all automated. Uh, so be unique, be valuable. Uh, don't only listen to yourself. 
but you're the starting point. And, and, and then if you're the boss uh, or a coworker, what's the point of hiring a bunch of amazing creative people and then just telling them what to do? Uh, you need to be mm. willing to hear no. You need to be willing uh, to take everyone's idea. Your job isn't to tell people what to do or even how to do it. Your job is why. Why are we doing this? Uh, that is something that I think uh, comes mm. with a lot of life experience. It, it's something that a leader can really bring to an environment. But once you've laid out that why and you've found the people that believe you, uh, let them be amazing and creative. That's so powerful and so true. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more with Dr. Bing. Today's episode of Overshare is brought to you by Gratitude. Now, no matter what is going on in your career or life, you are living someone else's dream right now. Whether that's being in the city that you're in or having the privilege of working from home or getting paid to be creative, someone else would love to be in your shoes. So be grateful. And I am so grateful that you're listening to this and I really appreciate it. So thank you for taking the time. And uh, now back to our episode. Uh, all right. And we're back. Uh, now, I was really struck with your talk at 99U where I guess the theme of the conference was creativity is future-proof. And you know, you have on, on the wall behind you the book you're writing, How to Robot-Proof Your Kids. Uh, do you feel like, I know you spent most of your, a lot of your career focused on education. Do you feel like our education system right now is properly preparing the children for the future? You know, I'm maybe not going to say some wonderful things about our current education system, but I don't say it because I believe it's a failure. Uh, you know, the education system of the United States, of the, the Western world, and, and much of the rest of the industrialized, I mean, it's given us something amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, my kids uh, are alive uh, because of that. Um, and right. My son has diabetes. My daughter was in vitro fertilization. Uh, you know, we live in an amazing world, even given its challenges. And right. the education system, I think as much as anything, has given that world to us. Having said that, it is a system that was built in a very different era for a different kind of education, uh, one that was very much focused on um, routine skills and a lot of rote learning. Uh, we don't dismiss the concept of creativity in education, but there's no formal system behind it because there hasn't really been a way to measure it. You can't give someone a creativity test. Yeah. Maybe in psychology we do, but not in the way that the SAT is able to do an assessment of your knowledge of calculus. So right. what do you do? So we've leaned into teaching the thing we're able to measure. And again, people should know how to factorize a polynomial. Uh, uh, we should know the history of our planet um, and not just the one tiny part of it that we might happen to be from. But that is not the recipe for the future. Uh, and, and I don't think it ever actually has been, uh, right. you know, I'm working on, uh, uh, what was supposed to originally just be a chapter of how to robot proof your kids. And it's ended up being like 200 pages long. Uh, and it's <laughs> called, this is not the industrial revolution. Uh, and it was just a response. I was on so many panels with people where some hand waver 
would just say, eh, don't worry about it. This is just like the Industrial Revolution. AI will create so many more jobs than it destroys, it'd be great for everyone. Uh, and every time I hear that, I think of a couple of different things, one of which was uh, a quote, a quotation from a British diplomat, uh, where he said, the plains of India are bleached white with the bones of Indian weavers. Uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution really started in the textile industries of mm. certain parts of England before it began to spread to the States and, and other parts of Western Europe. Uh, and, and so many have debated why there and what happened, but that's not the point. The point is it started in textiles. And if you were an artisan weaver at the time, you lost your job, even in England. Uh, who got your job? Mm. Little kids. Uh, not purely because the world is horrible and cruel, but because little kids had uh -huh. smaller fingers and they fit into the industrialized um, weaving systems that were being built, those textile factories. So we went from highly trained professionals uh, that were, along with agriculture, the dominant uh, economy of the globe. And suddenly all of those people lost their jobs, uh, you know, on, on the timescale of this happening, essentially overnight. And many of them just starved to death uh, because none of them could produce textiles as cheaply as those factories in England could. Uh, so that doesn't make it bad that the Industrial Revolution happened, but just understanding uh, those artisan weavers didn't suddenly get jobs in a, the multi-trillion dollar fashion industry. It, it took 200 right. years for that to develop. Uh, so let's not be quite so um, uh, 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 thrilled with the idea that we might be in another industrial revolution. These things have truly devastating consequences on the lives of many people involved. So let's be a lot more thoughtful about this. But um, so what gets left? Who were the people that succeeded in the industrial revolution? All those famous names of, we now think of them as like, things um, like Michelin. Well, that was a person. Mercedes-Benz, those were people. Uh, you know, all of this stuff was developed by inventors and industrialists. And what were they? They were everything. Some of them were devastatingly poor. Some of them came from wealthy families. Um, what did they have in common? It wasn't that they had gone to school and been trained, you know, how to program. Uh, it was right. that they had these deeper qualities about them, these meta-learning skills. And when the world changed, they were the ones that changed with it and adapted quickly. And I strongly suspect that that has always been true of humanity, that the people that have been most successful have always been these amazing people that adapted to that moment uh, and transformed. Uh, it may have looked wildly different earlier in humanity's existence than it looks today. But, and even that is kind of the point, which is those people that are able to adapt and uh, are part of this creative economy, they become the thing that they need to be. Uh, rather than us as a society trying to predict that one thing. I, you know, uh, honestly, the current education system is, uh, let's, let's try a metaphor out here. Imagine someone asked you, um, you know, what is the economic outlook for the next 10 years? Uh, 
I'd, I'd, I'd really like to know. Give me, give me your best sense of what it is. And, you know, let's be honest, right here in the moment, it's easy to say, boy, I don't know. Uh, it is mm-hmm. wildly uncertain uh, in the midst of COVID, but even in the absence of it. Ten years from now, what will the economy look right. like? How could we possibly know? And yet their response to that very reasonable statement is then, okay, I, I believe you, I get it. Tell me the one single stock. I'm going to put all of my money in that single stock, and I'm going to let it roll for 10 years. That is essentially how our education system is working right now. Tell me that one skin mm. every kid in the entire world should know. Uh mm-hmm. Everyone should know STEM. At least that's not a single skill. No, everyone should learn how to program. Everyone yeah. should learn AI as though that was a skill that you had. Mm. Um, no, none of that is right. If I were financially advising you, I would say, all right, the one thing we know is the future is uncertain. And we can incorporate that in our financial models and invest accordingly, which largely means that, you know, distribute your money around in different things, balance it out. Uh, but there are even more strategic ways you could deal with uncertainty. How should our education system deal with the uncertainty of not just our economic futures, but our technological futures and and health and everything? We should invest in people in the same way, invest for an uncertain future. And what that means is teach people how to learn on their own. Uh, And fundamentally, that comes down to this creative economy. Obviously, 10 years out, much less 20, 50, who knows what the technological world looks like. But the one thing we can be certain of is uh, absent some major bumps along the way, we're heading towards a world where knowing even very sophisticated advanced math is not much of a value proposition because some jerk like me can do a build an AI, not to do a job not to decide what should be done because of the math maybe, but boy, what is AI good at? It's good at turning numbers into numbers. Well, what is numbers into numbers? It's a risk assessment for a loan application. Uh, in many right. cases, it is uh, you know deciding maybe not who gets a job, but whether someone is worth bringing in for an interview. Uh, it is analyzing images. Is this X-ray, uh, is there anything here that might look cancerous? Uh, I think there's a lot of um, emerging research that AI is, uh, again, not magic. It has limitations. But anywhere we're looking at one of those very explicit uh, routine judgments, however cognitively complex, however many years of education it might take a human to be able to do it, uh, as time passes, uh, artificial intelligence will do it cheaper, faster, and even if it can't do it better, though it increasingly is, uh, it can do it so much more cheaply and quickly that 80%, maybe even 20% of what a human can do, done essentially for free and in milliseconds, transforms the economy and routine labor largely disappears. And the easiest labor to routinize is, in fact, complex cognitive labor because it's so expensive and it takes so many years to learn how to do. So Mm. if you went to university and you think that's going to guarantee you a job for the rest of your life, I hate to break it to you, but that is exactly what every AI startup in the world is attempting to automate. Uh, 
automating driving is really hard. Automating farm labor is really hard. It turns out just being able to identify that something on the ground is a strawberry and build a robotic limb that could then pick it without squashing it and everything is doable. But the simple truth is, unfortunately, the human that's currently do it will just do it for less. Um, mm -hmm. Building physical robots out in the world is really hard. Building virtual robots that don't decide whether someone should get a loan but can do the risk assessment on it. Well, huge swaths of our economy are based on highly trained humans doing that labor and it will mm -hmm. go away. So right. that doesn't mean that all jobs, so I'm actually going to agree. AI will create more jobs than it destroys. And those jobs will be on two sides of this massive divide. On one side will be a whole bunch of new jobs in what I call the service industry. And I'm using that term very broadly here. Um, okay. It is routine labor uh, with very little agency, very low wage power, because essentially you are substitutable. Anybody could do that job. We just need someone to fold those shirts. We just need someone to pick that strawberry. Anybody could do it. Uh, and then the other side is what I've been calling the creative economy. It is a job where only you can do it. Uh, where your unique contribution is the value proposition. We can build an AI that will do the complex calculation. We can build an AI that can actually extrapolate from your artistic style and create new images that look like that. What it needs is the seed to get started from, and that seed is you. Mm. And when I talk about the creative economy, I'm not just talking about visual uh, art. I'm not just talking about music. I'm talking about engineering and science. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about finance and business. Fundamentally, what humans could do that current AIs not simply are not good at, but cannot do. I'm not saying artificial intelligence will never be able to do this, but the current versions of it simply are incapable is exploring the unknown. If you want uh, the your career to be uh, part of that creative economy, then you must be exploring the unknown in some way. That is the one thing we cannot automate. Mm. And again, maybe someday we will, but that's an invention that mm. just simply has not happened. There's no human-like artificial intelligence lingering around, which is interesting because there clearly are some intelligences we can build today that are superhuman. Superhuman their ability to play mm. Go superhuman mm -hmm. in their ability to do any number of tasks. And yet some of the simplest things, a baby can watch uh, someone flip a light switch once and see that relationship between the light switch and the lights turning on and off and immediately understand that relationship on some level. Mm. Whereas a deep neural network would have to watch that hundreds, thousands of times and it never learns a causal relationship. It just learns there's a correlation. When the light switch is in this position, mm. the lights are on. When it's in this position, they're off. And if I train it on something else and then come back, it doesn't remember how to do the other thing. That's what's called uh, catastrophic mm. learning uh, or unlearning wow. in this case. So catastrophic right. interference. So um, you know, understanding what these emerging systems are actually good at. They are some of the most powerful uh, and sophisticated tools humanity has ever built, but they are only tools. 
It is the craftsman that matters. And this has always been true. Math is a tool. Uh, your ability to write a syntactically correct English sentence is largely a tool. Your ability to do financial mm. models or to know the ins and outs of how to find a but those are all tools. Um, there is no knowledge or skill, which is robot proof. Um, right. And slowly we'll substitute those tools with the capabilities of these machine learning systems. It won't completely happen overnight, but slowly as they get better, right. that's what we'll do. What's left is the craftsman. And it is the craftsman that has always predicted life outcomes. And let me be clear, what I'm not saying is throw the tools out. Schools shouldn't teach math. No one needs to know how to do mm. anything. A craftsman without <laughs> their tools is hobbled. They clearly are. Right. Um, I haven't derived an equation in decades. Like I have, uh, uh, Maple and Mathematica, I, you know, I've got Python to do this stuff for me. I, I don't need mm. to derive equations. So for a lot of people, we've had tools like this around to make us better for a long time. My yeah. ability to do creative things with math is not because I remember every single rule right. that goes into how to do a derivation. It is that I am the spark that says, you know, I know roughly where I need to take this equation so I can do something useful with it in my algorithm. Uh, I have an idea of how to take the facts of this scientific story to build a literal story that I can write and make the science understandable to a person. Uh, the simple truth is I could take some of these emerging models um, like the BERT language model from Google um, or some of the others uh, that are actually generative. And in theory, I guess I could give it a bunch of facts and it could write them up into a piece that could be read. Um, mm. uh, you know, what's interesting is if you really read a lot of these uh, computer generated uh, um, pieces of literature, uh, you yeah. read them in isolation and boy, a human really could have read it. But if you actually read a lot of samples of human versus uh, this, you then begin to start to see, um, well, a human could read, could have written this. But if I look at all these samples, they're also different. Different people write differently. These things right. all kind of read the same and often a bit dryly. I I'm sure those will get better right. and they'll change. But again, we are that difference. Um, and, right. and I'll say this, if everyone is supposed to learn how to do AI, like this is the amazing skill you're supposed to know for the future. Right. Uh, here is the single most important skill in all of artificial intelligence. What is the right question to ask? There is no substitute mm. for it. Uh, every right. bad thing you've ever heard about AI doing is someone starting from the wrong question. Who gets right. a promotion in their first year at Amazon, produces an AI that won't hire women? Uh, let's train up a chatbot for Twitter based on the American literary canon. Well, guess what? That canon's pretty racist and pretty sexist too. Right. Uh, that doesn't right. make AI racist and sexist per se, it's just, it's turning a mirror right it's back on us and showing yeah. us who we are. If you can't ask right. the right questions, machine learning will not solve your problem for you. 
but it, it can do a, the most amazing thing, which is completely change the economics of those solutions. Um, right. So that that's that was, boy, a long tour through tools, a lot yeah. of uh, what's going on. We can get under the hood about what creativity is, but that is the core of the story for me here. And I'm very right. scared so, that we will leave far too many people behind in that service economy and that that gap between the two will grow so large that it just isn't feasible to, for people to move from one side to the other anymore. Uh, so I kind of see right. the next 20 years of my life being this sort of manic catcher in the rye-esque, grab as many people as you can <laughs> and uh, pull them across before it's too late. Right. And I feel like that that creativity comes in the problem solving and comes in. Uh, yeah, I, I've been saying that I, I'm not worried about robots taking our jobs because robots would have never invented Spanx because <laughs> they don't know what it's like to be self-conscious or insecure. So like if we can just lean into our humanity and be even more human, we we're not at replaceable. And I like the way you're talking about it is it, it's just a tool and it's a tool to help you do the things that you do even better, but you still have to have the inputs. It's like having a computer or like having Photoshop, but like, what are you putting into it and how are you using those tools? Yeah. But you know, there are real implications here. So, um, right. you can imagine, uh, what a change it might be and how shocking it might be to some people where, um, you know, what is designing a website become, if someone can just sit in front of their computer and literally, as we are talking to each other, describe the site that they would like or the app that they would like, and the code is right. getting written behind the scenes. And that may sound ludicrous, and I'm not saying it's fully doable today, but I've seen demos of projects that do exactly what I just described, uh, right. where someone just talks, uh, automatic speech recognition, uh, pulls out the content, and a little prototype is is developed as you go. And five minutes later, you've got an actual releasable prototype. And anyone that believes in doing agile work, imagine turning out prototypes in minutes rather than months. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. Wow. Uh, and yet at the same time, if you're an engineer, I think you just heard me t tell you your job's going away. Uh, well, it isn't, but it is. I mean, the, the way that job is done maybe changes dramatically. Mm. And I think this is one of the big issues with organizations or individuals adopting AI and why it hasn't been the overnight revolution that maybe it seems, but it is affecting some things, is yeah. um, the boring thing to do is just say, where is a costly human being making an expensive judgment and replace them with a machine? And even if it's not as good as the human, we've reduced the expense so much that it's transformative. Uh, the much more interesting thing is uh, let's re-envision a system in which creative people uh, have all of the routine uh, skills they need as tools at their fingertips. And what we want them to do is something new and different. We want them to go explore the unknown. Mm -hmm. So instead of 10 people all working together, you know, a couple of engineers and some visual people and a project manager all working together, uh, you know, like a, a little symphony to build a one thing and, you know, translating across the engineering ease to the artist ease and the, all the challenges that come with that is, uh, and, and this is a bit fanciful, but just to really illustrate it, imagine each of them uh, getting, every one of them gets to build their own thing. 
uh, and the tools support mm. them in that routine way and they get to express their own vision, they still collaborate. Oh my goodness. Uh, there's right. nothing like creativity but in a team uh, to really produce something big and new, but now everybody's producing uh, in their own way. Right. So, so the output is multiplied. And the yeah. output is multiplied. And that's you know where this idea comes from, that AI will create more jobs than it destroys. Uh, but it is a much more nuanced story than that. And what's very clear, uh, I would like to say for my own work, but let's call it uh, on a higher authority, you look at work uh, done by MIT economists like David Atour or... Um, Asimogogu, and uh, they have these models showing that, well, it doesn't just arbitrarily make everybody better. Uh, if you're at the high end of the non-routine skills ladder, it is hugely productivity increasing and you benefit and you actually earn more money and there are more jobs and everything. And if you're way at the low end, um, uh, you see an increase in the number of hours worked you don't make more money, you probably make less money, but the total group of people at that low end doing non-routine but basic physical labor is enhanced. This is my service industry and my creative. It doesn't map exactly right. onto my story, but it's pretty close. But the middle gets eaten out. It gets eaten out in my models, it gets eaten out in their models for related reasons. So it isn't just that it makes everybody better and everybody more productive. It is how these things get integrated into our lives and how we make use of them. Uh, and again, these uh, very hand wavy types that just say it'll be great for everyone. Nobody needs to worry about anything. Uh, right. They are they're talking bad policy. That is not how our school systems should be looking at this. Is not how people or business leaders should be looking at it. Not individuals as creatives, uh, but also the people that say it's it it's, will ruin everything and it will eat all of our jobs. Uh, and you know whether you see it as as an elitist dystopia or a Skynet uh, end of the world, none of that's happening. Um, uh, AIs right. do not substitute for jobs. They substitute for skills, tasks, and, right. uh, and they complement many jobs uh, amazingly well in that creative economy. And also, we simply haven't invented anything that is smart in the way we are smart. Uh, and so right. there's no Skynet waiting around the corner. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I got to say, as an, an AI uh, person, I, I wish there was. I wish we could break through the kinds of limitations because they are really holding us back. But maybe it's a good thing uh, that we haven't done it. How about cyborgs? <laughs> so that's one thing is uh, one of my posters behind me here uh, says yeah, neuroprosthetics yeah. in big letters. And uh, the subtitle is I'm turning my son into a cyborg. How will yours ever keep up? Uh, now, in my case, I'm talking <laughs> about systems we've built to help my son with his diabetes and his autism and, and, right. and additional challenges. But let's be blunt. Uh, if I can build a system that could do something like increase your working memory span, uh, which, by the way, is associated at a population level with all sorts of positive life outcomes, earning more money, better mm. education outcomes, literally living longer. Uh, well, who wouldn't want that for themselves or for their kids? But let's say I build a product that can do it. Let, let's just be silly and call it a patch. I can just throw a patch on my forehead and suddenly uh, for two hours, I'm actually smarter. Well, could can you imagine a world in which um, it's the poor kids that get that first. Uh, mm. And turns out I'm actually describing an actual product, more than one, but the patch 
is something uh, a startup I collaborate with is developing. And uh, they're called Hum. Uh, forgive me for openly selling what they're trying to do here, but if you're mm. slamming a Red Bull every day because you think it helps you with your programming, imagine being able to put a little patch on that actually measurably increases your working memory span and transforming your programming. And uh, and maybe it will, I'm not saying it does, but boy, like this is the right. promise of what these groups are trying to build. Uh, I'm actually interested in using it for kids with traumatic brain injury, but hey, uh, that's not the main use case. The main use case is people that are good making themselves better. And I will tell you, I think the number one use case I can imagine is kids start showing up uh, for their SATs or college graduates for their GREs. And the rich kids have these little patches on. They're thinking, what the hell is that? Um, And if you don't think that if we could live up to the promise of actually changing those working memory scores, you don't think that that will improve their performance on those tests, you're fooling yourself. Right. Um, right. So we are already building cyborgs today. Uh, I thought mm. this was going to be like theoretical work that would be part of uh, the long-term research of my life. And yet I now have uh, five startups um, that I'm either on the board of or a chief science advisor that are working in this space right now, um, wow. ranging from people that are locked in, being able to communicate with the outside world, uh, to uh, the, that little working memory boost, uh, to groups that are working on long-term chronic implants for true brain-computer interface work. And this stuff isn't in a lab anymore. These are companies. Right. Uh, treatments for Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration. Uh, that are just built in to lighting systems in your house. Like, this is amazing. And will they all work? I'm a math scientist. The one thing I can promise is I don't know if any of it will work, but we have the freedom to take stuff out of the lab and see what kind of a transformation, and some of it will. In fact, we just had a paper published, uh, I think, in Nature or Science this week showing near real-time translation from a temporal lobe cortical activity to speech generation. Uh, And uh, in many cases, uh, they were able to get the accuracy down to 3% word error rate. So 3% of the time it produced the wrong word instead of the one that you were actually imagining. Um, Wow. And like, that is amazing. Does that mean we're gonna have that tomorrow? Hell no. Uh, But does it mean Someday we will be cyborgs. Well, you know, let's be honest, being human human comes with some pretty crappy limitations. And Mm. uh, I will freely acknowledge that I I want this stuff for myself, Uh, but I'll make this commitment. Uh, I only get it if everybody gets it. Uh, Like we should treat this not like a sweet 16 gift for wealthy kids, this should be a human yeah. right like a vaccine. And if you don't want it, you don't want it. Right. Um, but if you want right. it, you get it. Uh, because yeah. the the one thing I can say is it you don't have to change a whole lot about someone for them to become d- dramatically different. Uh, and when we look over the course of an entire life and the kinds of outcomes that I look at in my life outcome research, uh, right. will artificial systems deliver the same changes that literally, you know, the old school, you know, if we could boost someone's working memory span, they have better lives. Uh, 
um, well, if we could boost it artificially, will they have those same better lives? God, of course yeah. we don't know the answer to that. But um, if they can, uh, if that sounds scary to you, understand that we know, as you and I spoke about earlier today, we know with horrific molecular detail how childhood household stress permanently decreases working memory span. And in that decrease, right. we have taken that kid's life away from them. Uh, uh, I just want everyone to understand, as scary as it may sound, to use neuroprosthetics or cybernetics to change who we are for the positive, and those fears are legitimate, we do it to the negative all the time. Millions of mm. kids around the world every year. Uh, and no, we don't do it with malice and we don't do it with intentionality and parents love their kids, or at least the majority of them do, but it happens anyways. Uh, and if you could change that, you could change the world. Mm. That's, that's beautiful. Uh, there was one thing that you touched on in your 99U talk uh, that I don't know if I got right, but something about old men planting trees, which I thought was really poetic and beautiful. And uh, maybe it's a good, good way to end this. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes we spoke earlier about purpose and yeah. sometimes um, I like a good old fashioned metaphor for understanding uh, what purpose is. And so I talked a lot about sacrifice. And what is mm. a sacrifice? If, if, as I said, if your career is not a sacrifice, uh, if uh, working really hard to win a gold medal is, is not what the, the, the definition of construct strength of purpose is about, well, then what is? And I always thought uh, that that old saying, that the world get better when old men plant trees, is a really good way of thinking about it. They're never going to live under the shade of that tree. It's not going to make their life better. So why bother doing it? Uh, in fact, there's this man in India who has been planting trees along the advancing edge of a desert, just all by himself. Uh, that desert will eventually encroach on the village he lives in, but he won't be there. Uh, it's not going to affect his life at all. So why bother? The world gets better when old men plant trees. Um, the irony is, the, the paradox, as we've already discussed, is the people that go out and plant trees have better lives themselves. Uh, so I guess if we were to end this on anything I could ask people to do, it is tonight, as you're at home wondering what the future is going to be like and feeling scared, go plant a tree. Uh, do it literally, if that's what you feel like. But I don't care what it is. Make a sacrifice for something that's bigger than you and change the world. Because I guess if there's one thing I have learned across, I don't know how many millions or billions of data points in my research and all these papers and all this work, uh, you know, I'm not one for trying to distill uh, something uh, pithy out of science, uh, but this feels as true as anything I can say. If you want an amazing life, then give it to someone else. That's beautiful. Dr. Ming, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all this wisdom. Uh, it's meant a lot to me, and I, I know it's going to mean a lot to other people, especially during this time where we're all a bit uncertain. So to have 
something to focus on and something to look forward to even bigger than ourselves, I think is going to be invaluable to everybody. Oh, well, thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, astonishingly, uh, I don't, I don't think I dropped a single F-bomb the entire time, although I could be mistaken. Well, fuck yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> you can drop one now if you'd like. We, we swear all the time on this podcast. It's great. <laughs> all right. Do you feel smarter? I feel way smarter. So thank you so much to Dr. Ming for joining us and enlightening us. I'm just so fascinated by the work that she's doing. And I'm now thinking Science Talk with F-Bombs might have to be Dr. Ming's next book or at least a podcast. Uh, so we'll see if we can make that happen. Now, if you enjoyed Overshare, which if you made it this far, I'm assuming you have, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you can subscribe, rate, and review your podcasts. Uh, it helps us show up higher in the rankings and help us, helps other people discover us. Also, um, you can follow us on Instagram at Overshare Talks uh, to find sound bites and clips and collages from this, uh, this episode that you can share, uh, and we would greatly appreciate that. Also, thanks to our audio engineer and editor, Jesse Peterson, and the team at Second Child New York City. Miss seeing you guys in person. Uh, thank you to our producer, Moira Spahich. Uh, thanks to Eugene Ong and Gabby D'Amato for the Overshare branding. And you can see Eugene's handiwork and all the collages from each episode on our Instagram at Overshare Talks. And our theme song is Let It Grow by Caleb Grow. Now, if you're a creative or hire creatives, join us at workingnotworking.com. We would love to have you. Uh, like I said at the top, uh, we're a curated network of the best creatives in the universe. That's not hyperbole. Uh, the people that are doing uh, culture-changing, world-changing work are on Working Not Working. We have a ton of different disciplines from art directors and creative directors to animators, photographers, uh, strategists, cinematographers. Uh, the list goes on. We have over 50 roles, so we would love to have you join us. And companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Spotify, IDEO, New York Times, uh, all use Working Not Working to hire freelance and full-time roles. So just sign up at workingnotworking.com to join us and those incredible companies. And that's it for this episode. Don't touch your face. And please take a minute to reach out to someone and check in on them, see if they're doing all right. I'm sure they would love to hear from you. We're going to get through this. We just got to do it together. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.